Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So this morning, as we start off, I just felt like I needed to share something with you, something about me that most people just don't know. It's more of a newer revelation about myself, and I figured I just, I just need to be honest about it. I just needed to share. I've mentioned it once or twice before in very small circles, kind of just joking around, not really, really never owning my truth. I like that new thing, my truth. I like it. Owning my truth. Now, it's something I knew about me growing up, but I repressed it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't share it right publicly, and I didn't talk to my friends about it. And when I tell you, you might think less of me. You may leave the church. You may just say, you know what? There's no way this guy can be my spiritual leader any longer. For whatever reason, it's embarrassing. I'm drawing out a little bit, aren't I? It's embarrassing, but it's time to own my truth because here at FBC Conway, we value authenticity, we value vulnerability, and if we're going to create a church like that, I have to lead the way. So here it is. I love cats. (laughs) That's what it is. I love cats, and I, I love cats more than dogs. And this is just a new thing. Oh, boo. Real men like love cats. That's where we're at today. That's what we're showing. And I'm just going to own my truth today. Real men love cats. You see, growing up, I had a cat. You're going to look at this all day today. So growing up, I had a cat. Her name was Thumbs. Guess why her, her name was that? She had Thumbs. I know. Creative, wasn't it? Very creative. But you see, my friends, my friends didn't like cats. My friends didn't like cats at all. They hated cats. They would put tape on their paws. They would like flick rubber bands at them. And so growing up, in order to fit in, I thought I wasn't supposed to like cats either. And then I learned that actually men don't like cats. Right? Cats are just for older ladies. Men like dogs. I don't know why stereotypes are the way they are. I'm just telling you. That's the way stereotypes work. Right? And so... My friends were rather colorful with their language, and I didn't want to be associated as this person who might like cats. Right? It's weird how your youth shapes you, isn't it? It's weird how what other people may think or what other people may say, it's weird how all of that shapes you. And it's super weird. I mean, I should have figured this out a long time ago. I've had a lot of dogs. I've trained a lot of dogs. I'm actually pretty good at it. But after a while, they get on my nerves. But last year, my daughter got a cat. Look at this. Look. Look at this picture. Look at that smile. Oh, look at my kitty. His name's Garfield. You've seen him before. But that's a real smile. Look at the eyes. You can tell. I got a fake smile. That's a real smile. Please change the picture now. We need to let that one go. But it's pretty obvious. So, like, I like cats. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why cats are considered less masculine than dogs. Have you all ever seen a lion? 
Case closed, right? What do, what do dogs got? Gray wolves? That's it. Cats are the thing. But here's what I'm talking about. Why is it that these things, these things about us, these things that we have and that we like, why is it that so many, well, why is it that what other people think shapes us and represses things and stops us from living in the things that we actually like and people who we're supposed to be? You see, the embarrassing part about all of this for me is that it's embarrassing to admit that I was embarrassed about liking cats. Does that make sense? It's not embarrassing to like cats. It's embarrassing that I was embarrassed to like cats. But you see, all of us struggle with some extent the dealing with worrying about and thinking about what other people think of us. Some of us are plagued by it. We're so afraid that if people really knew us, they wouldn't like us. Some of us do our best to fit in doing what everybody else likes, never really learning and thinking about what it is that we like, the things that we want to do. So we just go in with the crowd, never really learning about ourselves and enjoying our life or who God created us to be. Some of us are so consumed with popularity and worrying about likes and starving for the attention of other people, we do some crazy things or put some crazy things out there just for some affirmation from other people. And other, uh, some of us, well, we just reject all of that and choose to be alone. We're so afraid of being rejected that we just say, you know what? People can't reject me if they don't get to know me, so I won't worry about people getting to know me, and, I, and I'll just live by myself. Like, I'll have no friends. I'm not worried about people. It'll be just me and my cats, right? That's what we think. It'll be just me and my cats. But we know that doesn't work. People need people. Humans need each other. That's been proven over and over again by human experience. But while this is a big deal for Christians, it's because all of us, all Christians have to learn how to handle not fitting in. We have to learn how to handle people not understanding us and people thinking differently about us because of our faith. If you're a Christian, you won't fit in in all places at all times. There will be places you just won't go. There will be conversations you just won't have about other people. There'll be parties that you'll realize you can't go to. There's things on TV or movies that you'll be like, you know what? That's very unhealthy for me to watch. I'm not going to do it. There's people. There's people you're going to stop hanging around with because of what they influence you for. And it's not because we think we're better than people. But if you're going to live a life dedicated to God, there are things that you're not going to be able to do, places you're not going to be able to go, and it's hard, and it's uncomfortable, and we can feel rejected and isolated. If we're just worried about what other people think, it can be rather difficult to work through. And so there has to be a better way. To, a better way. In fact, there is a better way. A way that respects and acknowledges other people because we need each other. We need community. It's just part of being human. But we can also do some things to help us free from being in the clutches of worrying about what everybody else thinks about us. Because we don't want to be driven by the opinion of other people. Today we're continuing our series on the life of David. And we've seen this young shepherd a boy in the middle of absolutely nowhere be called out and be chosen by God to be king. 
we're jumping ahead. If you've been with us, if, if you haven't, you got to go back and catch up. It's online. But now we're in week five, so we're jumping all the way ahead. And now David is the king. He's finally the king over the entire nation. He is the man. And David's first step as king, his first goal is to bring a new capital, all right, to establish a new capital for the nation. The other areas won't fit. They were divided at one point. So he comes together and says, hey, we're going to take this new land, and it's going to be the new capital. Guess the name of it. Guess what it's called? Jerusalem. All right, David's the one who does that. The Canaanites were establishing it. They were living there. This little group of people that were never defeated when they went to take the promised land had this place all decked out. There was a fortress there named Zion, which was named after this massive hill. And so David looked at this piece of land. He looked at where it was at. He said, you know what? That's going to be our new capital, Jerusalem, which is why it's called the city of David. And so David conquers this city. He does. He finally gets rid of that section of Canaanites they were supposed to get rid of a long time ago. He takes this new city, and the next um, part of business for him, the second part, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you know what that is? All right, Sunday school teachers, you're doing a pretty good job, okay? His second order of business is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the new capital. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm catching you up, okay? It's better than going through about 20 chapters I'm skipping. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden chest overlaid with gold. That com- what, what was inside of it? All right, Ten Commandments, right. And they were a symbol. It's more than just the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence with his people. Symbolically, it was God's throne representing his presence, his holiness and goodness with his people. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we learn that Israel, well, well, they kind of they kind of lost it. Right? They got it taken away. You see, Israel was fighting the Philistines and they were getting whipped pretty bad. And so they said, hey, we got a really good idea. Let's go get the ark. And if we get the ark and bring the ark here while we're fighting, then we're gonna win. Well, it didn't bring them the good luck they thought it was. They ended up getting whipped. Anyways, the Philistines captured the ark, took it from there. It didn't stay there long. It brought Philistines all, um, all sorts of trouble. They sent it back to Israel. And when it showed up, the people forgot the importance of it. It was only gone for about seven months. But just the common man saw the ark. They're like, hey, this is pretty cool. Let's peek inside of it. We know that 70 people looked inside of it. You want to know how we know 70 people looked inside of it? Because all 70 of them died. And I'm curious, after the first 60, why didn't they stop? I mean, I'll give them 60, but after 60, you'd figure you'd just, you just quit doing that. So after, so, I mean, this is a holy thing. This is a big deal. God had told them a whole lot of different things surrounding this ark, what they can and cannot do. And so then, after these 70 people died, they just sent it off to someone's house for 20 years. And just said, you know what, that is a scary thing. I'm worried about that thing. And they just... They just left it over there. And look at what it says, 1 Samuel 7-2. It says, the ark remained, we're going to call this KJ, because I'm not even going for this one. The ark remained in KJ for a long time, 20 years in all. But look at what it says about it. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. That's during the reign of Saul, folks. They're just like, man, something's wrong. Something's missing. The ark, the, the presence of God, they just left at somebody's house, and it just sat there. 
And so David, coming in as the new king, says, I got the new capital. How about we get the ark? How about we get this, this presence of God, this thing that symbolizes something so important? How about we don't just leave it at someone's house out there somewhere? Let's bring it into the holy city. Let's make this city, you know, honor, dedicated to God. Let's invite him here with us. So David picks up the slack. Saul didn't get it. David's like, we got to get the ark. And so he does it. He wants the blessing attached to Jerusalem. He's symbolically asking God to come and be with them in their new capital. So David's ready to do the right thing. I'm just letting you know up front, he goes about it the wrong way. Let's continue in the story. First Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 2. It says, then David gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all, and he led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord, heaven's army, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Next slide. It says, they placed the ark of God on a new cart, so they're taking care of it, and brought it from Abadiah's house, which was on the hill. Uzziah and Aho, Abaniah's son, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Aho walked in front of the ark. Now, these two men were enlisted. This is the house it was. So these two men had experience with the ark. They were going to help with the ark. So David builds this new cart. He's trying to show reverence. He's trying to honor the ark of the covenant. So he puts it on this brand new cart. But here's the deal. It's not supposed to be on a cart. It's supposed to be carried by certain people. It's not, but, but he builds a brand new one. Surely it's okay. Surely God doesn't mind them doing things improperly way. Well, here, verse 5, we'll continue. It says, David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments. The lyre, the harps, the tambourines. What's that one? Kessin? I don't know what that is. How many of y'all play that since you know so much about it? Oh, a couple of you do. Never mind. All right, moving on. All right, and cymbals. I'm moving on from that one. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. And Uzziah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. Self-explanatory. They're celebrating. They're excited. They're moving the ark. Then the ark hits this rock. Uh, excuse me. The cart hits a rock. The ark starts to fall off the cart. This man reaches it to try to stop it from falling on the ground because he respects it. And what's happened, verse 7, maybe some of you know. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzziah, and God struck him dead because of this. It's pretty tough, isn't it? Strikes him dead, so Uzziah died right there beside the ark of God. Look at the NASB. We'll look at this real quick because it helps us understand it a little bit better, more literal. Next slide. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzziah, and God struck him down, therefore his irreverence, irreverence, I can say the word, irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. So he was struck down, it tells us, because of his carelessness towards God's command. And this catches us off guard, the modern reader, we say, well, he simply stopped the ark from falling off the cart. But as we learned two weeks ago, doing the wrong thing for the right reasons isn't okay in God's book. He wasn't respecting God's commands not to touch the ark. One commentator says it the best. It says, God is good, but God is not 
safe. You see, we are told quite a few times throughout Scripture, in fact, over 300 times, we are told to fear God. The mighty power and judgment of God should be something that quite literally frightens us. And we should remind ourselves who he is versus who we are in all of our sin. You see, fearing God is actually looked at in the Bible as a positive thing. Look at these couple of verses. Proverbs 9 says this. It says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. You want to be wise? First step, fear God. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Proverbs 1.7. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. So if you want to be wise and you want to be smart... It starts with fearing the Lord. Look at Proverbs 14, 27. It says, fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. Look at Hebrews. Yep, Old Testament. I'm in New Testament. Look what it says. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and pleased by God, by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Fearing God. I mean, fearing him, this this consuming, devouring fire. Fearing God pushes us towards his word and saves us from caving in to our sinful, corrupt nature. In fact, Romans 3, when Paul is talking about sin and sin nature and people who are full of this, when he expounds on it, look at what he says about them. Look at the problem. Romans 3, 17 through 18. says, they don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. You see, a lack of fear causes us to continue and live in sin. It's where we take God's mercy and grace for granted. You see, here's the thing about fear, folks. All of us are going to fear something. Just like we were created to worship, just like we were created to love, fear is a natural emotion. And Jesus, yes, even Jesus tells us what to do with it. And I know this is, maybe some of you haven't thought about this, maybe you haven't been taught this, maybe it sounds like something archaic, but look, this is what Jesus says. Are you ready for it? Matthew 10. He says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both your soul and body in hell. You see, rather than fearing other people, what they think or what they're going to do, we fear God, the holy, righteous, good creator of the universe. And fearing God for the believer isn't about punishment. It's realizing and understanding that God is not safe. God is dangerous. He's a consuming fire. The holiness of God needs to be taken serious in our lives. Yes, he is good. Yes, he loves us. But he is still God. He is still holy and perfect and righteous. And quite often, we don't take it serious enough. We don't take him serious enough. We treat him, don't you? We treat him as if we dare him to stop us. Y'all ever done that? You're like, I'm, I'm going to do it anyways. I dare you to do something about a God. You ever thought that way? Yes, you have. 
can't be just me, right? Y'all dared him? Like, go ahead, I dare you. I mean, do we mean that? Do we understand what we're saying? You see, God's judgment fell quickly on this man for touching the ark. In the book of Acts, we see the same thing type of happen where this couple lies to the church. They want self-promotion. They say, yeah, we gave all the money. We're great people. We did this awesome thing. You remember what happens to both of them? Yep, die right there at church. Maybe we should take offering again, right? Right after that kind of sermon. Just start passing the plate. Make us all think twice about that one, won't it? But they were self-promotion. It wasn't about the giving. It's that they wanted the honor. They wanted the glory. They wanted everybody to see them. And God got rid of that quick. And they dropped dead on the ground. But you see, most of the time, people don't die immediately. And so the question we ask is, well, why do some get judged so quickly? But folks, that's the wrong question. The question isn't, why does God judge so quickly? The question is, why does God allow me to live in light of my sin? Why does God forgive me and why is he slow to anger? Why does he show mercy out of everything I've done? Why hasn't he taken me out like that? The question isn't why does he judge? The question is why has he let you live? We can never forget that God's anger is real. God's wrath is real because without it, the cross doesn't make sense. Look what happened, 2 Samuel 6, 9. This got David's attention, and David was now afraid. David wanted the blessings that came from the ark. He was the king. He had a new capital. He just wanted the good stuff. Y'all ever just wanted the good stuff in your life from God? Like, God, just give me the good stuff. But he forgot the holiness and the seriousness of the God he serves. So David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked How can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back in my care? David left it for three months. It sat there for 20 years, three months. David's like, look, I'm not messing with this thing. I don't want to kill any more people. And here's what happened. The fear of the Lord led him to learn from God's word. The fear of the Lord drove him to say, you know what? Maybe I should consult what he writes about it in his word. Maybe I should find out if he talks about it, if he speaks about it. I don't know. Let's see if he does. And so David paused. He sent home 29,999 people. It was 30,000. That didn't happen, right? He sent home all those people, said, go back home. Let's pause. Let's find out what God says about it. So he dives into his word, and here's what he finds out. The Chronicle tells us about it. First Chronicles 15, 12 through 13. It says, he said to them, you are the leaders of the Levite family. You must purify yourselves and all your fellow Levites so you can bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Here's what he says. He says, because you Levites did not carry... Because God told him to carry it, not put it on a cart. Because you did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. They failed to consult God. They just did things on their own. And David learned that it was his fault for putting those men in that position If he would have had the ark carried like it was supposed to have been, it couldn't have fallen off of a cart. We can't miss that David took responsibility for what happened. He took responsibility and corrected it. We don't need, when we start questioning God's holiness, 
When we start asking questions like, well, why does God care about sin? Why does God care if I do this? We completely forget and miss who God is. He is God. We are not. And he already told them what to do. And the truth is, we are sinners. And when we are confronted with our sin and our sin nature in Scripture, we don't wear it like a badge of honor, proud like I wear this shirt. Loving cats is not a sin. It's a good thing, right? We don't find community celebrating our sin and being proud of it. We repent from it and live in light of what God says about it. You see, all of us struggle with it, with sin. And so fearing God drives us to learning from his word. And what David learned wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't with with God. The problem was with him because God doesn't owe us a thing. God already revealed in his word what to do. The problem was David wanted to be independent, wanted to do things on his own, wanting the blessings that came from God without listening to God. But a healthy dose of fear drove him to learn from God's word. But it didn't stop there. Fear of God leads to discovering what God says about things. It causes you to second guess and regroup. But the fear of God also leads to worship and celebration when you understand who he is and then who you are. Look at 2 Samuel 6, 13. It says, after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord, right, they went and did, did it right. They'd gone six steps and sacrificed, right? They started worshiping. They started giving back. In light of who he is, in light of who they are, they started worshiping. So they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. He took off the kingly robes, was wearing a very basic garment. And so David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of a ram's horn. So David rips off the priestly, I mean, excuse me, the kingly garments, everything adorned to make him look so different and so much better than others. Because remember, in light of God's presence, a king is what? Nothing. Nothing. In light of who God is, we are, we are nothing. And so David stripped down dancing. He focuses on worship. The formalities are gone. When we focus on the Lord, the formalities and all the other stuff around us is gone. He just celebrates and worships the Lord. And so we focused on God. And look what happens. Verse 16 and verse 20. It says, But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David... Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Verse 20 says, When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today. How distinct, yeah, shamelessly exposing himself of the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. He goes home. He thinks he's doing great things for the Lord. Goes home and his wife just beats him up. He's acting unbecoming as a king. He's made a fool of himself. He doesn't look right. He's not dressed right. He's not acting right. He needs to be better than that. And her view, that's not how a king's supposed to do, uh, supposed to be. And she has all sorts of experience because who is her father? Right, the first king. So she knows what the David's inexperienced. He was running around in caves. She knows how a king's supposed to act. 
And it's not supposed to be like that. She's more concerned with political things than worshiping the creator of the universe. She's more worried about what other people think than God thinks. She thinks he's showing off. She thinks he's, his motives are unpure. She's judging his worship because she doesn't have the right relationship with the Lord. And as Christians, let's pause there, folks. You should never worry about someone else's worship. That church that does it that way over there, so be it. What's it concerned for you? Let them worship. Let them dance. Let them sing before their God. 2 Samuel 6, 21. It says, David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father. That's, that's pretty good, isn't it? Your dad? Oh, God, oh, yeah, you get it. Okay, it's awesome. Before your father and all his family. I'm better than all y'all. You got to love it. It's like God chose, not because I'm better, because God chose me. He knew. He appointed me as the leader of Israel. Not your father any longer and none of your brothers. None of them. The people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. He explains that he's dancing and celebrating for God, not for other people. The Lord chose him. Whatever she saw in the past, however things used to be done, that has nothing to do with the present. What's going on now is a celebration of worship because of who God is. He was celebrating. Remember, David is celebrating. All these weeks we've been learning about him. He's celebrating because all that stuff God promised had finally come together. He'd been running around. He's been living in caves. He's been rejected. All of that stuff. Now he's the king. He's brought God's ark back. The, celeb- the city has come together. The kingdoms have come together. So he's just celebrating and praising God because of all that he has done. In other words, folks, listen. All these great things are happening around her and what she focused on. Just negative. Just, fo- just looking for reasons to be upset. All these amazing things are happening around her and in her life. And she's just choosing to be negative and focus on those things. But David, you and me, we should celebrate and worship the Lord. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. We're not going to get into that second part, but we'll just stay on the first part. He said, I am willing to look foolish for the Lord. Folks, are you willing to look foolish for the Lord? I mean, are you willing to look this foolish for the Lord? Are you so consumed and concerned with what everybody else thinks that God is just somewhere else down here? Are you willing to look foolish for the Lord? You see, the fear of the Lord caused him to reprioritize his focus. He no longer was worried about what other people thought and what they did. He was concerned with worship. Folks, you can't focus on two things at once. If you're focused on worship, you're not going to be worried about other people. If you're focused on other people, you're not going to be able to worship. You can only do one of those. And David chose to worship. And and, and listen, this isn't just like a church thing. David lived a life of worship. It's not that he just went to church somewhere out there. He's doing the king stuff, worshiping 
going home saying, hey, we need to worship. Let's do this thing together. Like This is what his life is consumed with, bringing glory to God, because David was a God-fearer. He feared God. He learned from God's word and then lived in fear of God rather than man. And you see, Jesus had many opportunities to fear human beings. You remember his own family rejected him? But he remained faithful despite all of that. He desired to please the Father over other people. He was able to face criticism, be misunderstood, be misrepresented, betrayed, beaten. His closest friends abandoned him. He was unwavering his commitment to the Father. You see, Jesus reminds us that holiness is far more important than popularity. He didn't allow peer pressure to distract him from his life's mission, and neither should we. And the amazing thing about what we can learn from Jesus is although everybody left him, people betrayed him, he didn't worry about his popularity. The crazy thing is that on the cross, after the resurrection, God then raised him to where every knee will bow before him. When God elevates you, folks, when God will lift you up when due timing, God will bring you to where he wants you. You don't have to focus on that. You can focus on his goodness and his holiness. Proverbs 29, 25 tells us this. It says, the fear of man brings snare, which is a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. You see, all of us have to deal with social pressures. It's normal. It's part of being human. But what we learn from David is that fear of the Lord and our faithfulness to him must be our overriding concern if we're going to live for God's glory. Fearing others and what they think is just a trap. It's a trap that will lead to disaster. But fearing God causes you and me to learn from his word. And it causes us to live a life of celebration and worship. We can freely be who he has created us to be. We can be confident in what Jesus has done and that it's enough. We can live in the fact that we are sons and daughters of the creator of the universe because of Jesus Christ. Like our identity is wrapped and secured in Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about everybody else. We can live for the Lord. And the church, the church is the place that Christians should find community. The church is the place where we should accept people and love people. The church is the place where we should be able to bond and build those relationships with other people who fear God, with other people who are trying to learn his word, with other people who are celebrating and worshiping God together. Church, as Christians, this is our community. This isn't a place we just show up because we have nothing to do on Sunday mornings. These are our people. These are our friends. These are our brothers and sisters that we should intentionally seek time with, build relationships with. This is what we are, church. And so I ask in closing, do you fear God? Do you fear him? Are you more worried about what other people think or what God thinks? How about this? Do you spend more time looking in the mirror or looking into God's word in the mornings before you go to work? Is your makeup more important than prayer? Is your hair more important than his word? Do you spend more time picking out and putting on your clothes than you do putting on God's armor for the day? 
Do you respect God's holiness and goodness? Do you take his revelation serious? Do you fill yourself with his words? Do you celebrate and worship? Are you willing to look foolish for the Lord? Do you get more excited about sports and the new movie that came out than you do about coming to church on Sunday morning to praise the holy God? This morning, we are reminded of the holiness and goodness of God. Now, he graciously spares us and loves us and calls him to himself. And we are told to fear him, which drives us to learn from him, which causes us to celebrate and worship. And from time to time, church, we must remember that God's wrath is a real thing. Hell is a real thing. Hell wasn't prepared for us. It was created for Satan and his followers. Jesus took upon himself the very wrath that we deserve and offers us forgiveness and pardons us from our sin. And if we reject that, if you reject that, you will stand before a holy God on your own account. And you will explain to him, the creator, just imagine an all-powerful, all-knowing being you're standing before, giving an account of your sin. We're already told how that's going to work. And in light of that judgment to come, we must be reminded that our sin, even if we are saved, our sin still has devastating consequences here and now. So folks, don't take God's mercy for granted. Fear him. Learn from him. And worship. Will you pray with me?